Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Do you like a good mystery, esteemed audience? I hope that you do, because we're going to be talking a lot about mysteries today. And my mystery series, starting with Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is about an 11-year-old boy genius detective and his cousin and best friend, Delicat Skullworth, and they're going to fly around on jetpacks, and they're going to do battle with giant robot bees and then later alligator people and some other monsters as well but by god in between all that battle they're going to be looking for clues they're going to be figuring out mysteries so you can get that first book banneker bones and the giant robot bees as an audiobook as a paperback but the ebook co-esteemed audience the ebook is free yes free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this wherever fine ebooks are sold uh, under the super secret pen name robert kent i've written some horror stories for older readers and this is the time of year that you're looking for spooky horror stories. So for more information on that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, the world's best people, book people, head to middlegradeninja.com. While you're there, you can read an exclusive seven-question interview from back in 2013 with today's guest, Flora Bradley. Flora, I'm so thrilled to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their book or their biography. How painful when you're right here and you could do a better job of it than I can. Uh, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm Fleur Bradley. I am a middle grade author of lots of mysteries. Uh, I really love mysteries and I'm excited to talk to you all about that today. Um, so most recently it's Daybreak on Raven Island. You can see the cover behind me. Um, and that's basically Alfred Hitchcock for kids is how I uh, put it shortly. It's about these three kids go on a field trip um, to Raven Island, which is kind of like Alcatraz, and they get stuck there overnight and they have to outrun um, these ghosts, uh, this ghost hunting crew, and uh, solve a murder mystery while they're there. Um, so that's Daybreak on Raven Island in a nutshell. And then Midnight at the Barclay Hotel on the other side of me um, is my previous mystery for kids. It's a little bit younger. It's kind of like Agatha Christie for kids. So it's about these kids that uh, tag along with adults in their lives, end up at the Barclay Hotel, which is modeled after the Stanley Hotel, and um, have to solve a murder mystery uh, while the suspects are there. So uh, it kind of goes over motive, means, and opportunity. So it's a great introduction to mystery. So as you can tell, as I'm talking, I really love mysteries. When uh, I did uh, Banneker 2, I was able to use something from Breaking Bad, uh, a plot device, um, obviously not some of the, the harder, less middle grade yeah. things that show, but as I was doing it, I thought, well, how wonderful because children haven't been allowed to see Breaking Bad. So this will be all new to them. So when you come at them with mysteries in the vein of Agatha Christie and Alfred Hitchcock, hopefully you're, you're getting them fresh. They don't know those things. They're going to go and they're going to find them after they fall in love with your books, right? Exactly. And that's the idea. I want to be that introduction to the genre. So, uh, and that's, that's a bold statement to say about yourself, but um, I, it's good to come into writing a book with, you know, a strong vision and a big idea. And I, that's what was missing in my opinion, when I wrote Midnight at the Barclay Hotel and to an extent Daybreak on Raven Island is sort of that, hey, if you don't know about all these classics, this is sort of an introduction. And you're right, it is really fun because 
the kids don't know. They genuinely don't know. And I sometimes have to even remind myself because I'll bring something up, uh, a book or a, a movie or something. And then I have to realize, you know, these kids are eight or 10. They haven't seen the movies. Well, at least you hope they haven't seen the movies. And um, they haven't read the books. They don't know. They don't have that cultural reference um, that you do when you're older. And it's also a generational thing, you know, some stuff. Um, I know about that sort of gets lost in translation because it's just been too long. Like Agatha Christie's gonna, it's it. Some of Agatha Christie's stuff is seeing a revival, um, but other parts of of her work for for younger kids and for young people are just not as present. They're not going to make the connection of of the movie Death on the Nile to the book, um, you know. So. Um, it's a different um, a different way of storytelling and you have to frame everything a little bit with the hopes that they will check out those books and they will check out an Alfred Hitchcock movie, Go See the Birds. You know, it's it's an old movie, but it's when you're watching it, the buildup and the tension and the craft uh, involved is just really uh, admirable. So it's me going on a tangent <laughs> a little bit here. Well, that's what the show is for. The, the more you go on tangents, the more information we're going to get that I want think, to ask. <laughs> right, the birds in particular, I, was, I saw it not, I don't know, maybe a couple of years back. And obviously with high definition cameras, I don't think the special effects were ever that amazing to begin with. No. They were great for the time, but now they're especially mm -hmm. noticeable that oh, we could do this with computers a little bit better, although I still think computers look like our characters have stepped into a cartoon in a lot of films. Yeah. Um, um, those, even though the special effects are bad, the storytelling is still so compelling. The performances are still so compelling that we can easily suspend our disbelief mm -hmm. and, and accept that what is obviously a fake bird looks real enough. Well, and it's that that still the stories are the same and some of them are timeless. Like for instance, The Twilight Zone. Um, my uh, oldest daughter had a, a, a phase where she was watching all the old Twilight Zone and it holds up pretty well when you're watching it because even though, you know, the, the mannerisms and the language is a little bit dated, the story is still good. So, you know, you can learn a great deal from some of those older movies because they didn't have all the tools available that we do now. So you have to you know, tell a story without all the all the pizzazz and all the all the extra glitter. <laughs> the Twilight Zone's a, a good one uh, for a lot of reasons, but one thing I like about it is it was extremely progressive for the time, and yeah. now it still seems dated, but less so than other shows that were just accepting the the, the common norms at the time that were trying to push boundaries and challenge. Yeah, and I think that that it's that short story format because I I come actually from writing short stories for about ten years in the beginning of my career. That's all I did was write short stories, and it's a craft and it's a um, it, it's it's a skill set that uh, that re requires you to write a really good story because you don't have that time to build up a character. You have to pretty much instantly create one, and. Um, it's that story in a nutshell and that, that um, you know, that com compact uh, storytelling that's so fun. Plus, you can take risks. Like in a novel, there's a certain expectation. There's a certain arc, and particularly in middle grade, because, you know, you're, you are writing for kids. So there, there's some more boundaries and things that you just want to stay within. But in short stories, 
um, in general, you can take a risk and try something new, try a new form of storytelling, try, you know, do something really shocking or like particularly in horror, I like uh, being able to just do something really scary um, and have it not end, no happy ending. You know, that's that's what you can do in a short story that's really in a novel, particularly for kids, you don't really want to go there. I mean, it doesn't have to all be tied up in bow, but um, you don't want to uh, scare the kids, basically. <laughs> Well, there's don't want to and shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, true. Now, well, some scaring is good. And you never know. Like I, with Daybreak on Raven Island, I wrote the book. And and you just don't know until it starts to go out into the world what the response is. Is it really scary? Is it not all that scary? What are people thinking? And And from the early reports, people are genuinely spooked. So I'm like, okay, I did my job. Because <laughs> you don't know when you're building, particularly when it's a lot more about building the tension and building the mystery, because mystery is a lot like horror in the sense that um, you're, you are planting clues and you're building and you're building until a reveal. So horror is the building of, of what am I afraid of, the shadow in the corner, the darkness, the sounds, and then building until... Um, at some point you reveal what it really was that made those sounds and what the shadow was and um, where the ghost came from. So, um, you know, there's a skill set involved with that that's similar to mystery, um, but at the same time different because you don't know what, you know, what's going to scare uh, a young reader. So Daybreak on the Raven Island, definitely. Um, I, I, from what I've, I've heard, I've done my job. Um, and it's aimed at a little bit older of a reader than Midnight at the Barclay Hotel. So um, that works. You can do more uh, scary stuff, I think, at that level. I know Tori, Marvin, and, and Noah, they're all in seventh grade. So is that about where your ideal reader is or just under that? Who? What, what's the ideal age range? It's a little under that. Most kids for middle grade will read up. So I would say, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth um, are my my people, so to speak. Um, I think at seventh, you're you're uh, heading towards kids reading YA. Um, my it, not always. I mean, there's seventh, eighth that will still read middle grade, and it depends on your the level of your reader and what they're exposed to, what they're allowed to read. Um, but uh, yeah, seventh and up, I would say, are already starting to look more at YA or something like The Hunger Games. You know, a little bit um, popular sort of stuff yeah no, depending on, on where in the country you are the most exciting thing you may get to read is the bible and it's worth it because every every nasty violent terrible thing you could possibly want to read is in that book. So it, it's, it's funny because people don't you and i go back some um to when i had my double vision books out which is spy spy kids sort of uh stuff but he gets hit on the head at some point and and he a gun is waved at him at some point in the story and people don't really flinch at that stuff it's it's when it starts to get into you know uh anything moral um related that you start to get in, into banning books and, and and things like that it's but at this rate you know who knows? Give it enough time, and 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 everything will become off limits. You're right. Then we'll be reading the Bible. I'm hoping. I see a lot of pushback. So, as much as it's it's terrible to see some of these reports of of books being banned and and all the lists, I see 
librarians pushing back, you know, like in Florida and in Texas. I see work that people are doing to actively uh, combat uh, the banning of books. And, and it doesn't get talked about maybe enough, you know, that, that there's, it's not like um, people can just magically go around and, and are those banning, banned books lists bad? Yes. Uh, but I, I'd like to focus on the people that are fighting the good fight rather than the people who are just so scared. They're just scared and they, they, they cling on to something and that becomes a banned book list. Um, but there's also a lot of people that are doing great stuff for our kids and, and are making sure that they do have access to the books that they really need. Yeah, I uh, tend to take, not take it for granted, but um, just accept that there's a certain type of adult that will always be and has always been around trying to ban books, burn books. And I don't know why that person is the way they are, but they're, they, they pretty consistently show up. <laughs> throughout yeah. their history uh, and I, I have faith that you know another 20 30 years from now they'll be there uh they'll be trying to ban books and and, and some other things yeah. so i take it for granted but i do talk with enough authors that are fighting that fight and of course it is important to always take it crucially not take it for granted that just because we have won in the past we're going to continue to win and, and then literature is going to be widely and freely available absolutely i will say though like looking at my own kids which are our young adults now they're they're um uh, 19 and 22 um that generation um is is so admirable you know they're they're so much more progressive in their viewpoints um they teach me so much um when just listening to them and the way that they look at things and and um the level of access that they have as much as the phones and everything gets bad rap, it also opens their world. So someone who lives in a small town in say where I live, Colorado, uh, can still have access to um, a world of cultural um, influences in a way. So their generation is different. I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll start to see more of this um, um, seeing basically some of it change as generations shift as my generation gets older and 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 the younger people come up and hopefully they'll be more accepting and some things that that are a conversation now or an argument now will stop being one at some point that's that's my hope but i know that that's that's very uh rainbow hopefulness <laughs> Well, we could use a little rainbow hopefulness. Yes, now. exactly. That's why I write middle grade. I mean, it's what's more hopeful than writing for kids, really. Um, yeah. Well, the, um, yes, nothing more hopeful than writing for kids. But of course, you have chosen a genre that also um, there isn't there isn't any missing uh, a little bit of darkness here and there as you I mean there is a body <laughs> yes there is a body there is a body someone's dead I'm sorry <laughs> you know what though I write it as a cozy mystery in a way so for those people not familiar with that term it basically just means that the murder the terrible stuff happens off screen to an extent and that it's mostly about solving the puzzle rather than the the darkness of the death um, so it works well for middle grade and that worked well for midnight at the Barclay hotel as well. Cause that's a younger middle grade. I mean, there's second graders reading this and there's a murder in it. Um, 
but the murder doesn't happen on screen and that particular book in raven island it does uh and sometimes you have to push a little bit i think um as far as when i started writing um these particular books um a librarian told me my kids want a murder mystery so because a lot of what existed and and still exists are mysteries surrounding a theft surrounding you know um something else mysterious with, with a puzzle to solve but it you know people were shying away from the murder mystery which i think with the right skills and the right writing is is perfectly doable in a kid's book i mean they they watch enough on tv and they see enough around them to to want that kind of those kinds of stakes basically um so that was really fun to try to um write a story that made it okay basically when i talked with um <clears throat> sarah pennypacker available in the back catalog of steamed audience check it out it's worth your time um we talked a bit about um, writing about war for children and about how there isn't, uh, you can't shelter children the, the same way you might have been able to shelter them when you and I were younger. Because mm -hmm. even if you take away all the cable television, all the, all the movies, you, you restrict that, sooner or later they're going to find access to the, the World Wide Web. They, they live in the information age. Anything yeah. you want to know is a Google search away. Mm -hmm. How does that, has that changed your approach for how you write for children? And what are some hard and fast rules you have for what's too dark and what's what's acceptable? Oh, well, that's an excellent question. You know, when I, I do a lot of school visits, so then you get a, a great sort of um, benchmark as far as what the kids are exposed to, what they're watching, what they're, they're talking about. And it really isn't all that much different uh, from what and when I, even though you would think things are different or is it different as far as the the information age and the access to the internet yes but what they're interested in what they're comfortable in with is still the same they will shelter themselves in a way from things they're not ready for the things they don't understand like for instance um, my double vision books um the first book is an, is is kind of uh, spy kids funny. The second book I really wanted to be an espionage espionage book. So it's set in Washington D.C. There's lots of complex uh, sort of spy stuff going on with double spies, and there were kids that that read or read the first book and had trouble with the second book because it was just too complicated and they had to put it aside. So that was a great learning experience for me to know. Okay, I have to mind what kids are ready for as they read and go on. And it isn't necessarily content. I mean, we talked about ban banning books, all that. Sometimes it's the complexity of a plot, particularly for mysteries, you have to make sure that you pace and that you reveal at a certain level and that you're very clear about what's going on. Um, in each of the books, I have sort of stop scenes where the kids go over what clues they have and what information they've recovered. Otherwise, the kids will get lost, particularly the younger ones, but sometimes even the older ones. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's kind of on the mystery side. And I, I went on a tangent and I forgot what your question was. <laughs> it wasn't as interesting as the answer. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, esteemed okay. audience. We had a terrible internet outage. Uh, so Fleur and I are continuing our conversation the next day, but for you, it's just been a couple of seconds. 
Uh, we were talking about mysteries. We were talking specifically about your newest daybreak on Raven Island uh, and all of the uh, Alfred Hitchcock influences on that. And I had wanted to ask you, because we talked about uh, Agatha Christie was uh, the influence for your previous book and now Alfred Hitchcock. Do you have like a bucket list of, of uh, mystery uh, people that you'd like to emulate? I, I, I sort of do, but I don't want to share it because it's top secret. But at some point, you know, you'll get all the influences of, of Flair Bradley um, as time goes on. There are certain movies, you know, that, that shape you and, and that um books that shape you that that are i find it fun also to recognize that in other people's work where i'm like oh i i see a little bit of i don't know uh neil gaiman in this writing or you know like you can see what someone um liked growing up or or who who they admire maybe and, and it kind of works the same for me and i think it's fun to use as a focus so now it's very easy for me to sum up my book in, in a very quick one sentence. I can go, hey, it's Alfred Hitchcock for kids. People instantly know what the book is going to feel like. Um, and it's so much more, of course. The story is so much more. And there's so much more packed into this book. Um, but it's a quick way for me to translate to the adults who are going to pick this book up and give it to a kiddo um, what it's going to be like. So for, for the uh, Midnight at the Barclay Hotel, it was Agatha Christie for kids, which kind of hopefully tells people, hey, it's a, a, a sort of beginner mystery, a puzzle for kids. And then Alfred Hitchcock, scary, suspenseful, um, but still mystery. Gotcha. So it's not a spoiler for the younger readers, and it's a nice guideline for parents that are buying books that makes 100% sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes it easier for me. And it, it also helps a lot when you're writing. I mean, it, it wasn't until, gosh, my the manuscript I'm working on now that, that made me realize, oh, you know what, that's a really good thing to sort of put on your wall and remember that that was your focus, that was your idea behind it, that's the vision for the manuscript. So anytime there's any side alleyways or, or little distractions that I go down where I'm thinking, oh, this would be cool to write about. I can kind of go, no, rein that in. This is what this book is supposed to be. Save this for the next book. Um, and that's kind of how I try to keep my focus as I'm writing, as I'm editing. And then it makes it easier to then turn around and sell the book or sell, you know, essentially try hope that people will buy the book uh, when they hear about the description where they'll quickly go, oh, you know what, that would be a fun book to check out almost like a like a tonal mission statement yeah in a way it is like the yellow line on the road as you're driving you yeah. know so i 100 percent support that i always crush my uh, students in my writing workshop when i tell them that officially there are only seven major plots and five major conflicts let me break them down for you now don't despair it's like knowing there are only so many musical notes which there are Great, yes. but you still compose all of the music of the world with just these notes and same thing mm -hmm. with plots. But when you know that there are inevitably gonna be some comparisons, why not steer in the direction of a style that you love and that presumably mm -hmm. lots of people love? You can really lean into it, you know, and have fun with it. That's what I did for Daybreak on Raven Island. There's 13 ravens and one of them is a raven named Poe. And, and Poe kind of frames the story. So that was fun for me to take all that kind of spookiness and, and use that as, as the mood for the book. 
Um, so yeah, it, it, you're right. It, there are only so many original plots and ideas, but you, when I, when I teach kids uh, uh, writing with writing workshops and things like that, it, you can only write it your way. So every story, even though it, is, it has been done before, it has not been done by you and in your particular combination of things. And um, so it, you're still unique, but it does help for people to quickly know, okay, this is what this book is going to be. And this is the expectation from, uh, you know, as a reader that you can have, as you open this book, this is the experience you're going to have. Cause that's, we, we are talking about entertainment at the end of the day. So you want to make sure that people know, hey, this is a little horror, or this is more mystery, um, and this is what what you can expect as you're reading this book. So, um, especially since I'm dealing so much with uh, people who will never read the book, you know, librarians, teachers, they're the ones buying it, but they will probably never read the book. They're going to turn around and give it to a kid. I mean, in the beginning. Now it's mostly reviewers that are reading it, uh, parents, librarians who do read the book, but a lot of them, um, the people I meet at Barnes and Noble and my independent bookstore um, may never read the book, but they'll, they need to know what it's about when they turn around and give it to a kid. I'm somewhat sympathetic. I mean, I've got a never ending series of TV shows people have recommended to me, just like the easiest, like just put it on and passively sit someplace while it plays and i can't even get through that sometimes uh, mostly because I'm, I'm i'm reading books uh, to prepare for for podcast interviews um so i am i am sympathetic with with busy adults knowing going in and I, I know some writers have got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder which i think is the wrong approach um but you know i i i, I agree with the sentiment behind it that yes you've written a beautiful book the whole world should stop and appreciate it absolutely they should um, but it's not effective to expect them to because they're, they're, they're not going to. Um, so uh, what what do you do specifically beyond uh, picking um, a style and a, and a tone that's going to be easy for them to pick up and understand what, what they're dealing with? How do you um, set the expectations for people who are never going to read your book to feel comfortable enough to promote it, to, to bring it on to their, mm -hmm. to bring it on to readers and so on? Um, gosh, I think... It, it's I try to remember who I'm writing for all the time, um, which is the kids. So I, I start with that. Um, but but it is important to be able to turn around and go, hey, you know, this is this is what you can expect when you pick up one of my books. And also, um, you know, making sure that it's it ends up in the hands of a kid who's actually going to enjoy it, that it isn't like Daybreak on the Raven Island is a little scarier than Midnight at the Barclay Hotel. So a lot of the time when people, when I'm in a bookstore, for instance, and someone comes up, a parent or a teacher or whoever, um, and they'll they'll ask me about my books, I'll ask them who are they shopping for, and, and then I can sort of steer them in the right direction uh, as far as which book is going to be um, the better one for, for whichever kid. But it really is one reader at a time. It is one teacher, one librarian, one parent at a time. And I think that that's where a lot of the time you can, as an author, get a little weighed down because it is hard to, to convince people to read the book. Um, and you never, you're never gonna get the kind of buzz that a book for adults is going to get because it just doesn't work like that. You're, you're giving a book to a parent or a teacher who will turn around and give it to a kid, they'll like it, but they're not on the, you know, an, an eight-year-old hopefully isn't 
uh, on the internet a whole lot, reviewing books and, and making sure that, that Twitter knows that your book is out. So it's a very, it's a strange segment of the market. Middle grade is and children's picture books are, are similar. YA, you're more, you know, marketing directly to your reader. But for my category, it is, it, it's, it, it takes a really long time for a book to take off. Like Midnight at the Barclay Hotel was very quiet in the beginning and then eventually really took off and got popular. But it doesn't do that until it's been out there a while and you get a little lucky and it catches some buzz. So it's a very difficult part of publishing to be in, I think, middle grade. It's, it's not for the faint of heart and you have to be really patient and um, stay positive and not get weighed down by, by the, the sheer time it takes um, to build a reputation as an author. That's what I'm really trying to do, hopefully, is that my books are, are fun, they're good mysteries, and they're great for reluctant readers. That's what I'm hoping over time uh, will happen where, you know, you become that sort of automatic buy where someone hears, oh, Fleur has a new book out, I'm going to buy it because I know it's going to be good because she wrote it. That's essentially what you're hoping for, you know, as far as your your five-year, 10-year plan, if that makes sense. Yeah, difficult to create that if you're if you're a debut author. Yeah, absolutely. For I don't envy, especially now because the marketplace gets smaller and um, it's crowded, like you said, it is difficult to keep up with all the books that are coming out just every Tuesday, which is generally when um, books, new books come out. I am simply overwhelmed trying to make sure that I keep up with all the friend authors who have books out because I want to support people and I want to help them out and, and you know, go, hey, happy book birthday. Um, but there are so many books coming out every Tuesday. So it gives you an idea. Every Tuesday, there's a new batch of books, you can't expect people to read all of them, you know, unless they are speed readers. There's a few reviewers where I'm like, wow, you must be reading all day long. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, most of not all, we just can't read everything and appreciate everything. So like you said, you can't be um, precious about your book. You have to be practical. Well, that that being said, everyone should read every book that comes out. What are you doing, people? <laughs> Get on it. We wish, right? We wish. Oh, gosh. Obviously, you, you want to focus on controlling what you can control. And when yeah. it comes to building word of mouth, uh, even if you went around personally to every person that ever read your book and just like burst in while they're reading, it's like, tell all your friends. That's still probably not going to be effective. What have you? Obviously, you're a marketing genius because you're on this show. Um, uh, but what, what have you found to be the most effective ways to market both yourself and your book to create that long-term reputation? Um, gosh, I'm, I try to make connections all the time. So it's, it's better not to think of it as marketing, but more as I'm making friends. You know, I'm getting to know people who are, are reviewing, um, people who, librarians in middle grade or um, middle school librarians or, or elementary school librarians. I'm getting to know all those people on Twitter and then listening on, you know, what do they need? What, what, how can I help? And, and that's every day when I log on to Twitter, I'm not going, oh, let me promote my book because it's the worst thing to do if you are an author out there. Just don't do that. It's useless. But look for ways to help other people. Because if you help someone else, when it's your turn to need help, they will step up and help you back. 
So it's a lot about that. And it's about making friends and connections. And, you know, sometimes I talk about my cats and sometimes I talk about what I'm writing and it's, it's about the human factor. Um, and just going out there every day, making connections, which is a nice thing anyway, because like I'm a full-time writer, so I'm home, you know, behind my computer by myself with my cats um, all the time. So it's good to be out there and just talk to people. And even if it's just a little line on Twitter or uh, Instagram or what, wherever I am, um, I'm mostly active on Twitter, just platform that I'm, I move easiest on. Um, but it is more about making one connection at a time, helping other authors. Whenever I get panicky about, oh, is my book gonna sell? Are people gonna like it? I think to myself, take a breath and go help someone else because that's better energy spent than sitting around thinking that, oh, everyone should read my book. Um, it takes time to build uh, a reputation and to, uh, to build um, a momentum for your book. And the better way to do it is simply to help other people. And it feels way better anyway. You know, I'm way happier um, going on Twitter going, hey, let me see you if, you know, that debut author friend of mine who, who had a book coming out last month and it's I haven't heard anything about it anymore. Let me do a quick shout out. So they, you know, keep that book alive. Stuff like that. It doesn't take a lot of effort to really um, make someone's day. And that's what I focus on every day is try to do one nice thing in a minimum. Uh, for someone else and then you know you feel better anyway and then the book is going to do what the book is going to do you never know um, like midnight at the Barclay hotel was successful um, largely a lot because I did oodles of virtual school visits during COVID so then it gains momentum um, but that's all you know showing up every day you have to show up and, and you know be the best person you can be and then good stuff comes to you. I'm a big believer in that. Oh, I, I am as well, but of course I always I always have cynical thoughts where I have to entertain the other side as well. Um, and um, like for example, people I will ask people what's the best way to market the book unless I write the best book you possibly can and fair. But I don't think, with very few exceptions, have I met authors who didn't think their book was the best possible book. <laughs> because of course you do. You put your name on it. It's your book. You could have written about anything. This is the one you chose to write mm -hmm. and to your way of seeing things. It is the best book ever, and the rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I, I empathize completely. I, I am that way. Um, but I have had the experience, um, not, to, not to ever complain because I have um, had far more wonderful interactions with authors than I ever would have thought possible. Authors are the best people on earth and they have uh, I, no, no complaints, they've, they've treated me well. However, this is gonna sound a little bit like a complaint. Uh, it does annoy me just a simple thing like if we'll do an episode of this show without calling out anyone specifically, this is a fair amount of time to prepare for a show um, record a show, edit a show, put it out there, promote it. I've given you whatever whatever platform I have available. It is the it my 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 house is your house. My platform is your platform. yeah yeah whatever yeah. That's worth when I do it. And then an author can't be bothered to tweet the link. Can't be bothered to share it. I will never publicly say that hurts my feelings. But just without calling out anyone specific, of course it hurts my feelings. How do you navigate? Because 
because you have been, I've, I've seen you online, you are very supportive of all sorts of authors, and not every author is going to reciprocate that. How do you square that versus how you could have spent that time, which is, I don't know, watching Netflix, whatever, whatever fun thing you might have done it, instead? How do you keep that from getting you down a bit? Or is this just a me problem, not a you problem at all? I think my investment per author is a lot less than your level. I mean, if I were on in your shoes, that would tick me off pretty significantly if someone did not support um, what I was doing. I don't know that it's some people just don't know how to how to use their power or how to um, engage on social media. So sometimes it's a simple case of that where I know how to do that. I'm comfortable just sort of chit-chatting. For me, Twitter is like my water cooler. You know, I take a break and I go see what's going on and I have a, a silly talk about cats or books or writing or whatever it is. We're just being human beings. If, if I'm supporting someone, I, I for me, it's it's not a huge time investment. And, and then I just move on. Um, I think the hardest part for me um, now is more on the side of I can't do everything I want to do anymore. Sometimes people don't respect you. It's really just about respecting your time is what you're talking about. And I've had that happen where I've invested a lot of time to help someone and then I don't really get back what I think is appropriate. Uh, thank you or, or just sort of that person doing something back for me. Um, but it is it, it's balanced out by the people who are really amazing. So um, I try to not dwell on the negative too much because it's it's just bad for the soul and it starts to fester. And then I, I sort of drop when I catch myself getting bitter because it is this industry is just really tough. So it's very easy to get a little bitter or to see someone else's success or to to see that, hey, this person's doing absolutely nothing when they have all these followers and they could easily, you know, kind of help me out in turn because I just invested the X, Y, Z time or whatever. Um, I try to kind of take a step back then and go, you know what? I'm, I'm going to focus on the positive and on the things that were re really nice. And a lot of the time what will happen then is, which is, is, is sort of the universe giving me a nice nod back, is I'll get a really nice email from a teacher or something with a bunch of kids in a picture with my book. Or there'll be something really nice where I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is why I'm doing it. And this is, the, and this is what I want to spend my time on. And this is why it's worth it. Because, for instance, for me, in a similar way to you, um, when COVID hit, um, I didn't have really any opportunities to promote Midnight at the Barclay Hotel. And I had seen from my Double Vision series how hard it is to get any foothold when you have uh, books coming out and uh, you're hoping everybody will buy it. But sometimes that, that, that buzz just doesn't happen. And writing the book that, best book that you can is not enough. It just isn't enough. It's nice to think that, but it doesn't work like that. Um, so I knew that Midnight at the Barclay Hotel needed, I needed to do something and I was stressing out, stressing out. And then I realized, you know what, the teachers and the kids and the librarians have it way harder. They were, you know, everyone was teaching from home. Uh, it was, it was just a hot mess. And I was here worrying about a book. So that was a really good moment for me to sort of go, you know what, forget about the book. I'm just going to do what I can to be the best human that I can. And offer my virtual visits for free. And I think I did like 120 of them during that 
school year. Um, and I just had fun. You know, I forgot about promotion and that, that, that real tension of have to and, and, and all of that stuff. I just focused on the kids and, you know, being, trying to put good things out there. Um, and it sounds a little hippy dippy, but uh, I really do believe in, in, you know, put good stuff out there. Good stuff will come back to you. And if nothing else, you feel better anyway, because you're just more focused on giving rather than, you know, um, what you're not getting. But I think you're perfectly entitled to be a little ticked if someone doesn't do their promotion. So I just circle back to that particular part of the conversation. I would be mad too. And, and then, you know, uh, but publishing is a small world. And what happens then down the road is that you can sort of remember, oh, yeah, that person, I think I'll step away and, and go talk to these people over here rather than to this author because they're not such a pleasant person. Um, so, you know, uh, eventually it, it, it all evens out, I think. Well, in, in all fairness, um, I always also try to bear in mind that this is a free show if somebody showed up and participated. Hey, that's already a <laughs> pretty big investment. <laughs> and also, I hope that I'm saving up enough positive karma or whatever that when I do do something stupid, and I will, I've been me my whole life, I can see it coming a mile away. Sooner or later, <laughs> something dumb's gonna happen. That people will remember all the good things and be like, ah, you know what? Uh, on the whole, this guy's nicer than he is. Yeah. Nuts. We're gonna give him a little bit of, uh, of credit uh, during this difficult time. When <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly yeah because yeah, I, I i felt for the authors who had their debut novels coming out right there you know had events scheduled in, in march of 2020 when the world's falling apart and so on and i understood the the two poles because yes the daily death toll is what all the businesses are shut down what's happening but my book feels like a relatively minor thing in the in the face of all that but I get it. You focus all of your heart, your whole life. A person who's got a book yeah. in their hand, that is that is not everything that a person is, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And you feel like, you know, you're failing before you even start. And, and some of the books got pushed back. There was that. And gosh, yeah, I mean, debuting, it's still really hard to, to be a debut author, you know, to, to try to get any kind of traction um to get your to for people to even notice you um in this giant uh sea of books that is being put out so yeah you have to focus on the on the the stuff you can't control um but still that's that was and it still is very challenging time for debut author it's it's challenging for me and you know i'm five books in and if you count the nonfiction books that i wrote i'm a dozen books in and, um, you know, it, it never, it's never any easier. It's, it's never any, I think you just learn from your experience, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and you learn that it's a long game, you know, everything, the, the, the promoting of books, particularly in middle grade, is just a long game. You have to really focus on, on um, not just that first blitz of promotion when it comes out, but beyond that. No, I, I, I'm not convinced that there's nobody that sits back and says, I've 100% made it, every dream is fulfilled, because I keep talking to people who I would assume that that is true for, and they tell me the reasons that it exactly. is. Exactly. 
Exactly. There's it's esteemed audience. You can hear it as well. But five books in, you've been nominated for a number of, of, of awards. You've received all sorts of reader feedback. Surely there have been points along the way where you felt like, oh, I did do it. The, the dream did come true for me, right? You are Flora Bradley, published middle grade mm -hmm. author. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's um, people, other people asking you to, to blurb their book or quote their book. That's sort of one of those where I'm like, oh, someone thinks that my name is worth something. <laughs> so that, that was a cool experience. Um, the, the kid fan mail still gets me every time. And that's a small level, but it just, it's, it's just really amazing when they, they draw a picture of your book and, and talk about how much they enjoy it. I mean, they, you've really made an impression on a young person, which is what you're trying to do. Um, there was one uh, girl who dressed up as Penny. So uh, Midnight at the Barclay Hotel has three main characters and one of them is Penny. Um, and she dressed up as Penny for her dress up as your favorite book character day. And, and her mom sent me a, a picture and it's just, it's stuff like that. It's that you, where you're just taking a moment and it's like, yeah, you know, things are going well for me in a way that I didn't know, didn't know we're going to. Um, and just in general, like the buzz, when there's any sort of buzz or anybody talking about your book that I can't link back to me, you know, and like, it's not my cousin or my, my mom going, hey, look at this book or a friend or whatever, or somebody who I emailed or I don't know, some first level contact. It's a third level sort of connection. Who's talking about my book? Then you it starts to feel like, oh, yeah, I'm an author, you know, because somebody is talking about the book without you making them. <laughs> so that's, that's a level of, you know, I, you have to, you do have to celebrate those milestones. Um, during uh, COVID in particular, I was so busy with all these school visits. I was writing my next book uh, that and that's when I wrote Daybreak on Raven Island. And it is my, my daughter, both my daughters were living in the, in the house with us because of circumstance or college and, and all that stuff. So we were all in the same house and they were great about celebrating every accomplishment. So every time there's something good happened, um, they were like, cake, let's get some cake. So it became sort of a joke in the house where we were like, do we have another reason to have cake? And it got to the point where award nominations, they, they kind of roll in in the springtime uh, and summertime. So it just kept coming and coming and coming for midnight at the Barclay Hotel. And that was also a moment where I was like, I need to sit for a moment and, and kind of appreciate um, what's happening right now. There's a, a, a speech that Neil Gaiman did for some college. And he was talking about a moment where that he had uh, sitting next to Stephen King where he was signing books. and um Stephen King told him that this is great and he said enjoy it and he uh, Neil Gaiman said that he didn't because he was just so busy you know with in the moment signing the books and and I'm trying to remind myself anytime something good happens to have cake even if you're not having cake you can have virtual cake but sort of take a moment to go I did that you know whether it's even something that is not an external and not an author moment, but more of a writer moment where maybe you finished a chapter or you revised a difficult portion of your manuscript. It just, you have to celebrate the small stuff, the milestones, the moments that you have that are good um, because it fuels you um, when it's hard. 
know you had um i don't know i don't know what the average author journey is between the newbie that's like i wrote a book and then they suddenly offered me a movie deal like oh good for you you're 19 ah fantastic uh and then the person who's you know 75 76 been working their whole life and now finally their debut novels coming up there's there's a whole range yes I know that at one point you had five unsold manuscripts in a drawer you had a couple of agents that represented some of those and you never got a contract for that stress versus where you're at, uh, where, wherever you are, happen to be momentarily, where you mm. know that there's going to be more books, you know that you're probably going to receive some more feedback. That's got to be night and day, right, in terms of, of what stresses you out? It is. It's, it's, I will say, though, there are no guarantees. There's, there's no, you know, I'm working on a manuscript now that's going to go on general submission. That means you know, it could possibly just stall out. It's entirely possible that that my, what I'm working on right now does not get published. There are no guarantees. There really aren't. Even when you're at a level where I am, where you do, you sort of looking back and going, hey, look at that. Those are all my books. It's, it's a tough industry and it doesn't work uh, like that, unfortunately, where there is a moment where you can go, oh, you know what? Uh, my next book was probably going to you know, get all this money or I'll, I'll get another book contract. It's possible that this one stalls out. It, it, it does happen. So I try to remember that. And, and that I think it's a good uh, motivator because there are no guarantees. So that means that you do have to write the very book, best book that you can at that very moment and put your all into it every single time. Um, because otherwise, um, you know, you start phoning it in or assuming that something is guaranteed. I don't think you do your best work anymore. So um, I, I kind of embrace that uh, part about publishing is that there just aren't any guarantees. And who knows what will be next? I'm working on a YA manuscript as well. And that could go nowhere or that could be a huge success. Um, but uh, what I can control is how hard I work and how I, you know, how much I put into those manuscripts and how, how much I make sure that it's a book that where I'm thinking, okay, that third grader, fourth grader I'm talking to today, they're going to want to read that book. And that's, that's where your mind has to be at, because if you start to live in the bubble of thinking that everything is guaranteed, you don't do good work anymore. That makes 100% sense to me. I think that's about the most positive way to look at it. I mean, that is the situation either way. So you might as well. Exactly. You might as well embrace it. Yeah. Why not? There And and, and you have to keep your, your sense of humor. Like you were saying, some people, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to get bitter in this industry. And I've, I've, to just to put it into context, my very first book, Double Vision, came out just about 10 years to the day. Uh, ago and most of the people I debuted with are no longer doing this so just to put that into context they're not writing at all anymore um, so that's how tough of a business it is and also it's about whether you hang on and you keep going so you have to find a way to stay positive um, to keep at it in an industry that is just extremely tough and, and, and de can be demoralizing if you get too caught up in, in that part of it, the business side of it. Um, I think you do want to quit. There's better ways to make money, let's be real. So a lot of people, once they've had their book out, they can say, well, I did that. I don't want to deal with the industry anymore because I've sat with some fellow debut authors from that time 
and a few of them were so bitter where I thought to myself, I just don't ever want to be that, you know, I don't ever want to be that um, angry with, you can be angry at the industry, but it isn't going to change. You know, it's always going to get harder. It's even, it's so, so much harder even now than it was 10 years ago to get an agent, um, to find publication, to, you know, to find a home at a publishing house, to get your book seen. It's that much harder now than it was 10 years ago. So you have to find a way. I'm, I mean, I get frustrated with the industry sometimes, but then I put that in a box and go, you know what, that's, that's, it's poison. It's poison to your soul, to your creative spirit, um, to your ability to promote your book. Um, so I don't ever want to become that. Um, so I work really hard to stay positive um, for my own sake, really. Thanks, 100%. I do love the idea that uh, Penguin and Random House will stop for a moment. They're like, wait. It should stop merging. We didn't know how upset we'd made you, poor author. Oh, oh we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna try right. this right now. Yes, yes. Change our practices. We apologize. Oh, they're there. Yeah, no, it does not work like that. So yes, you have to, you have to do what you can to make your end work and still be happy in it. Because that's at the end of the day. I mean, I'm living a dream if you think about it. So I'm trying to remember that um, whenever it gets hard and things are uncertain. Um, you know, that you're right, that this is, that it's fun. I mean, let's face it. You could have been accountants. <laughs> yes, I was, was an accountant. Option. I kid you not. Before I, I became a writer. In finance, I probably would have been an all right accountant. Yeah. Um, but I've been, uh, I've been around long enough that uh, I've known people personally who've been critique partners and friends who have who have gone the very bitter route. I had somebody who was the most hardcore writer I'd ever know tell me that they felt like they'd been in an abusive relationship with publishing for a long time and now they wanted to be free. And I could see that argument. I don't feel that way because I've, um, despite every last dream I ever had not coming 100% true, I keep talking to Fleur Bradley today. I'm having fun, I enjoy this. This is not a rational, reasonable thing I've decided to do with so much of my time. I could have spent more time financial advising. This mm -hmm. is the thing I chose and it is, it is mostly uh, a joy, but it does occur to me now and again that when you get to a point like you're at right now, where you have had objective success, um, despite whatever hardships that might have come along the, the, mm -hmm. the way, you've had these experiences. You, you've had the, the photos from children dressed as your characters. And I've got one of those too. And I keep it when, when I really need inspiration, I'll look at it and go, that, that's what we're doing. Yes. This for. But I, it also occurs to me that you are an author. Nothing you do from this moment forward can take that away. You could become an author that nobody likes very much because of a terrible thing you did, but you would still be an author. And up to this moment, everything you've done, I mean, better things. So if you did find that you found something you loved almost as much as writing or that brought you joy in another capacity and maybe maybe even a little bit more income stability, um, I don't necessarily know that that's, that's a dark ending to, to a career that you could just- No, and I don't, yeah. Yeah. And, and those people who are no longer around writing, you know, I, I can't blame them. You know, sometimes it's it's a choice you make where you're like your 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 critique partner where it's like, I don't want this this anymore. You know, you are choosing 
when you are going into uh, a traditional publishing sort of contract, you're partnering with the publisher. So you are, you know, you are your business entity and you're partnering with them because they have the resources to editors, the, the, the art department, the distribution, the way to get your book out there. And, and what, what it is that they do or what they decide to do or not do, um, you know, that you cannot control. But you can control what it is that you do and you put out there and the effort that you make. Um, when with each book, I sit down and I make a, a big marketing plan and I have all bases covered in a sense that if the publisher does absolutely nothing, I'm still OK, because I'm still doing all the things that I can do to get the book out there and that I've learned over time work and, and don't work. And, um, you know, it, it, it's it's tough. Yes, and publishing is a strange industry, and we can talk, you know, for another three hours about how weird some things are. Um, but yeah, it's after we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's it it is. You you choose. You're right. You can you can choose not to do that. And there's a lot of people who are independently published. Back when I was first published, this was still very you know sort of printing your garage thing to do. But these days I sit next to independently published authors, self-published authors, whatever you want to call it. And they are doing the same thing I am. They're selling their books. So they're, when, when I sit at a festival or something and I sit next to that person, they're promoting their books, same way I'm promoting my books. So, you know, you can choose to, you can choose lots of different paths in publishing. And I think that's the part that is exciting now is that you can do so much more um, to get your books out there that, um, you know, paths that weren't available or, or that weren't as good of a path uh, back even 10 years ago. And now you can. So you can choose to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I at one point might choose to, you know, independently publish something. I have no idea. It's, it's, I don't rule anything out at this point. It's, you know, tomorrow is a different day. Next week is a different week. Next year, everything could be completely different. Publishing is weird like that. And you have to change with it and you have to make your own choices based on it. So you can't be bitter about, you know, when your publisher is doing X, Y, Z or not doing X, Y, Z. This is a partnership that you're choosing to be to enter into. And, and you can also not do that. Something I'm hoping to see, and I think we are seeing it. And I hope it, it continues to become more widespread is that independent publishing will put more pressure on traditional publishing to act right because you're not the only game in town traditional publishing there's no. all kinds of options i can hire mm -hmm. the uh, cover designers for the best selling books i can hire the editors for the best book and many of them have gone into freelance uh yeah. because oh, yeah. they pass from publishing house to publishing the best people in the world are available on on fiverr mm -hmm. right now um, and so I would hope that that will force traditional publishing to step up their game and justify one how much of the how much of the um, uh, the profit they're taking from the book because uh, you are giving up well not you personally but uh, traditional oh, yeah. are giving up a significant amount of mm -hmm. royalty yes the privilege of of going with a traditional publisher and so the question has to be for all that that I'm giving up what am I getting in return and then. That equation, I assume, will continue to change over time. It mm -hmm. has to be evaluated on a case by case. 
having said that all of your previous publishers, I'm sure, have been absolute perfection. This is just hypothetical. <laughs> you know, it's it's you you're right. You can make those choices. And I think as authors, particularly not debut authors, but authors that are, are more established go on, um, they're gonna have, you know, have certain things where hopefully the agents will start to go, hey, you know what, this is not okay or um, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope so. I hope we'll start to see that given the amount of people that are writing and the fact that, you know, uh, publishers can pick and choose, I don't know. Um, they're still in a very powerful position in the way that um, the system works. And the, But I'm, I'm hoping that we'll start to see some changes. Also for the editors, there's been a lot of, you know, shifting and, and, and people quitting because the conditions are just so tough. I mean, we're talking about it from an author's perspective, but the editors and a whole different, the other people, like you mentioned, um, have gone freelance, some of them, um, because it is so tough. Um, so hopefully we'll start seeing a bit of an improvement in conditions and, uh, and the industry going forward. But we'll have to see. I, I, like, I like what I see from small presses. Um, some of the smaller presses are doing an excellent job getting their authors into promotional opportunities. Um, the products are looking good, like the books themselves are looking good, whereas some time ago that was a bit iffy sometimes where it also looked kind of like something that somebody printed off their printer. We're now seeing professional, you know, like the small presses are able to put out stuff that competes significantly with the big, uh, the big dog, so to speak. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see that for my author friends, and I'm excited to see that for uh, publishing in general, um, just to kind of see where, where that goes, um, because they're, you know, sometimes the status quo is so used to being a certain way, um, some of the smaller publishers' houses can kind of shake things up, I think, right now. Does drive me nuts without calling out anyone specifically. When I see um, a, a, a big five or big four, however many there are, when you're listening to this esteemed audience, uh, or uh, or even when I see a small indie press and the cover is hideous, like what are you doing? I could go get a pre-made cover for fifteen bucks right now that looks better than that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's and it affects. You don't think about it. I didn't think about it until um, I was out there myself. But the cover is everything. You know, it really is. If the cover the cover needs to convey what the book is about and what the book is like, and it needs to get you excited about it, a really good cover can elevate the your ability to sell because it's the first thing people see all the time. You know, um, so I mean, yeah, it's it's that that's definitely interesting sometimes to see where I'm like, ooh, unfortunate cover, or a really awesome cover where I'm going, wow, you know, and it's it's. It's great to see that for um, Midnight at the Barclay Hotel. What was really fun is there's interior illustrations and they really did an amazing job packaging that book and, and making it perfect for the mood of the book, for the young readers, because it's, it skews a bit younger towards younger middle grade. Um, so yeah, that, that when that is done, when it's done right, it, it really does help a book. It, it kind of lifts it up um, and gives it some wings. So, um, yes, it's definitely covers are, are, are super important. 
I could talk to you about publishing all day, and I'm quite confident by the time we finished, we would have solved all the problems. There's actually <laughs> publishing industry that we're not going to do that, but I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, reluctant readers, uh, because I know that you have self-identified your, uh, as a reluctant reader, and that you have um, worked specifically to help reluctant readers, and in fact, you have raised um, uh, someone who has a reading disability that you've been able to to help with that as well. So what is the key to, to, to reaching out to a reluctant reader and getting them into the world of fiction? Um, I think it's it's getting away from, I like a book, so you must like a book. I like to read, so you must like to read also. It just doesn't work like that. You know, um, it's the same way that you might like a, a certain TV show and someone else really doesn't. Um, and, and I, I think for, for certain kids, um, particularly kids with the reading disability, and the percentages are, are all over the place, but it's as much as 20%, sometimes more, um, they have a reading disability that just doesn't get diagnosed. I saw it in my own daughter. It's very difficult to spot. And, and the way it presents itself is in someone who goes, I don't like to read or someone who may read a paragraph in a history book or something, and, and they'll read it, but they won't comprehend any of the information that is in it. So you have to work uh, around that kind of, uh, that comprehension level, and you have to instinctively sort of know, okay, if I need, to, it can't be too dry, or it needs to be conversational in a way um, what they're reading. And there's lots of different, I could go on for like an hour about this stuff. But basically, you want to sit down and meet that reader where they are, instead of trying to make them do something that you want them to do. And part of our problem is, um, for publishing and for um, uh, educating as well, a lot of the people who are in that business or in that job, love to read. So they come from a certain perspective and from liking a certain type of book, a book that's maybe, you know, going to win awards or, or um, uh, a, a book that's kind of the perfect book for that kid that sits in a corner quietly and reads. Well, that's not a reluctant reader. So if you want to reach those kids, you have to change your own mindset in, to an extent and think about, okay, just because I like to read this big fat book doesn't mean that kid is going to like to read that book. How am I going to get them to read? And sometimes that's graphic novels, which is very exciting right now to see. There's so many great options for uh, reading graphic novels. Um, in my own books, I, I make sure there's lots of dialogue. There's lots of stuff happening. So it's not all about interior monologue, blah, blah. There's stuff happening on the page all the time. Um, and that that's going to hook a reluctant reader, something that a book that's very visual. Um, my, all, all my books are basically because I, I pick my setting carefully in the way that I just look at things. They're very visual books. So that's something that you want for reluctant readers. And I think um, it is so important because particularly in middle grade, that's where you lose your readers. That's where you lose your particularly boy readers. Um, the kids give up on reading because they all the this stuff that they read for required reading is is boring or it's it's just not something that they would enjoy to read or to read for fun so reading for fun disappears when you get to middle school high school a lot of the time particularly for boys and and 
I think sometimes we just need to stop and, and make a better effort at trying to meet those kids where they are and listening to what it is that they like. What are they into? What's, I love during school visits to just ask what the kids are reading and what they are excited about. And then they're excited because you're validating the fact that, hey, you have an opinion. I'm not just here to tell you everything. What do you like? Um, you know, what are you into? And um, it's that's super fun. And I think super important because even if you look at the statistics, reading is everything. You know, it, it indicates college readiness, uh, kids' ability to graduate high school uh, lots of on lots of different levels. If you can get kids reading, every other subject starts to go better. Um, they get better at math. They get better at, at science because it's, you know, it wakes up your brain in many ways um, that we just don't even understand yet. And as you can tell, it's a subject that I get excited about. I do a talk for librarians and teachers now uh, on reaching reluctant readers because I spend so much time researching the why of my daughter's reading disability and then linking it to myself going, hey, I'm a reluctant reader and I like to read books that are action packed and that have some white space and that aren't this thick with the tiny font. And um, so, you know, for me, this is a kind of a passion uh, direction, so to speak, uh, that I hope to hook those kids and get them reading. Even if you just, it, there's nothing more exciting than getting a letter from a kid who's going, I hate to read, but I loved your book. Um, and then you're kind of like, okay, maybe then they'll read the next book and maybe they'll read the next and they'll start thinking of themselves as readers because that's that's really the goal. It's been my experience that most adolescents cannot get enough of the symbolism and the color metaphor between Hester Prynne uh, and Reverend Dimsdale, that's just the most exciting thing to them. More descriptions of forest, please, Mr. Hawthorne. Stop <laughs> making kids read that book. You're you're choking the life out of them by boring them with these absolutely yes. books that you know what they are noteworthy. You already have all of the um, all of the the study guides and the sheets made up. It makes the teacher's job easier. But you're killing their love of reading. You're teaching them this is something that. Who in their right mind would choose the uh, a whole library full of books? Who's choosing the Scarlet Letter that doesn't already know it's supposed to be one of the greatest things you'll ever read? That was my first time when I thought, you know what? I don't think these academics are 100% right. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And there's so much being published. You know, we were just discussing the flood of stuff that comes out every year. There's so much exciting literature because really all these authors, every single one that wrote the books that are coming out poured their heart into it. It's a, at least a year of someone's life. That's what I when I explain publishing to other people and and why I don't ever post a negative review, is is because I, I'm like this is a year of someone's life. Even if I don't like the book, someone else might. Unless it it has to be pretty bad for me to even think about you know posting something online about how bad the book is because. You know, it, it really is that tough. And there are so many really amazing books being published, which is a shame that that's not more of a focus um, in education. Um, but that's a whole other um, podcast right there. 
Nope, we're gonna do it right now. We're gonna fix publishing. We're gonna fix education. We're we are stuff out left and right. <laughs> just, just listen to us, and we'll have all the solutions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned a lot of white space and a lot of dialogue. Is that because uh, it makes the pages turn more quickly and builds confidence? That look how fast I'm reading, or is there something beyond that to it? it it's that. It's the um, ability to visualize something like something on the page. If you have action, that's easier to visualize than internal monologue. Um, it's the reading itself, comprehending what's in a paragraph. Like I, some of the educational material, the nonfiction that's out there is is just atrocious. When um, I was teaching my my kids because we were homeschooling, um, the. The, it was so difficult to find good material, well-written history material that um, felt like something a kid could understand. Because um, we would read things together and I would essentially translate what was on the page for my daughter. And it gave me a good understanding of what needs to be there and what not. So it does. you need to try to find a way to write just in more approachable language. And it's it's sometimes really subtle, um, but it is that it's the speed of, of reading, like the feeling that you are moving along, um, vocabulary sometimes, um, and just it being fun, you know, a, a fun story. Uh, a, a, in my case, I love mystery, so fun mystery, um, something that, that will keep kids engage because there's something happening on the page. And it doesn't mean you can't have character development for Daybreak on Raven Island. I think the thing that I'm proudest of, of that book is the level of character depth. And that took a lot of work, but it's all woven into action. So the kids are always, so if you're seeing a, a, a part of someone's character of, of Marvin, Tori or Noah, you're seeing something that makes them unique or the, the character journey that they're going on, the character arc, it's woven into action. And you can do that. It just takes um, effort. You know, it takes some skill to have something that the character's feeling manifest in what's happening uh, in real time. Um, so, yeah, that's just one of the ways of reaching reluctant readers. I think the people that I know that do it very well don't necessarily actively think about that part to just do it's a certain style of writing i think that that um reaches that reader a little bit more easily well my hope is that the next time i, I sit down to write i'll listen to this conversation a couple of times through uh, and i will uh it'll just come to me like a moment of inspiration oh what a brilliant idea i've just had that was fleur bradley's idea <laughs> <laughs> i hope so i hope so it's fun i mean why not have something happen while, you know, you have your character um, think about something or, or realize something? It's, it's, but it's craft. It's, it really is craft and it takes hard work. You mentioned that you want to focus on, on the visual. And I'm always, um, I'm, I'm very wary of what I call sitting and thinking scenes. Anytime a character is sitting and thinking about the plot, that's exposition, that's lazy writing, make something happen and introduce it that way. I'm 100% yes. with you there. But what about um, the other senses? You mentioned visual, I assume that's primary, but do you, is it as important to make sure that we know what the characters are smelling, tasting, hearing, all of that to create the sensory experience? Or is that less of a concern for primary readers than getting to the action, or, or reluctant readers rather? 
Um, I, I put it in there, but you have to just be brief um, and, and sort of use your rule of threes. You know, um, if someone is describing a scene, pick three most, most prominent things. And I, I don't, I think I, I'm stealing that from Stephen King from his book on writing, but the, like in describing a scene, let's say you're walking into a room, what three things hit you first or are most um, descriptive about it. For me, it's a little bit easier to do that because my, my first draft tend to be kind of skeletons. So they're what's happening in the story and that's it. And then I go back and I layer in a lot of the sensory detail. So it's it's easy for me to to write that way and to write reaching reluctant readers because I don't do a great deal of it to begin with. So whatever I layer in, I can be very deliberate about. It's not like I have to cut a whole bunch of words or anything like that. Um, so yes, you want I mean you want your sensory stuff. You want uh, you do want those moments where your character has an internal moment um, in response to maybe something that's happening um, in the plot. Um, but you know, it's 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 about sort of pacing that um, and making sure that it's not giant paragraphs of uh, stopping a scene essentially to to describe what's going on. Maybe my mother did want what's best for me. She thought those <laughs> as they exploded behind her. Ah, yes, there you are. <laughs> Not sitting and thinking. Perfect. <laughs> well, what's nice about this particular format that I've had for Midnight at the Barclay Hotel and for Daybreak on Raven Island is of three main characters. So I pick characters specifically who would not sit at the same lunch table. So they're very different. Um, you know, they're not friends going into it. So that's a way for me to use the, the other characters in the scene to bounce things off of and to, to basically put pressure on each of these characters uh, as they are dealing with whatever problem they're dealing with um, because they're around people who don't necessarily agree with them who might do something that they would never do. For instance, Daybreak on Raven Island, um, Marvin jumps off the ferry um, and they miss the ferry to go home for the night. Um, so he forces a very scared and, and anxious Noah um, to tag along essentially on this nightly trip on Raven Island, which is full of scary stuff. So it's the other characters you can use sometimes um, to show your, you know, they, they kind of are, are soundboards for each other. So it's a way for you to show character development and conflict um, by using the other ones in the room. That's a first rate tip right there. Yeah, uh, it's fun, you know. That uh, saves you some of the uh, exposition traps that they have to get to know each other. So stuff that you want the reader to know would come up normally in conversation. Yes, yes. And and I mean, that's, it, it feels a bit like cheating when you're doing it because, you know, you're using all the other characters to, to sort of create conflict, but it, it is fun. I think the biggest challenge is to make sure when you have a, a multi-character uh, cast, so to speak, so I have three main characters, that you can relate to each of them, um, that it doesn't you know, you're, you're as a reader that you're able to connect to to all three of those kids. That's the biggest challenge because it's far easier to pay, have one protagonist and have them be 
you know, the, the reason your reader shows up in a way when you have three, you sort of splinter that. So that's a challenge, uh, definitely. So there's just pros and cons. Well, on the upside, I'm certainly not your book, but I've had the experience of reading a book where I don't hate that character. I really hate, but I like this one. So if you can get two out of three, that ain't bad. <laughs> yes, yes. I've had it where it's like a dual thing where they go between two people and I, I want to skip the ones of the, <laughs> the character I don't like. <laughs> like this one I would like. Can we move along? <laughs> so, yes. One great character can carry an entire ensemble. <laughs> yeah, I, you t just look at some of the TV shows out there. <laughs> uh, Flair Bradley, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Oh, no. Um, I've, I've heard some things I can't explain, but I've not seen a ghost yet. And, and, and we'll have to see. I'm, I'm sort of hoping, you know, I'm like, come on, <laughs> give me some material here. Um, but I have not. I've been to the Stanley Hotel, which is reportedly haunted, did the ghost hunting tour, got nothing. And, uh, you know, have hoped for it. But uh, so far, so far, no ghosts. So if there's anybody out there, <laughs> come on over. Seems like ghosts don't bother people that are not interested in people that really want to see them. It's the folks that have no interest whatsoever that they yes. can't get enough of bothering. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure talking with you over over two days, two days of Flair Bradley. Right. You, you, what, what, a, what a wonderful. Uh, I know. I'm like a house guest. <laughs> you're going to write more books, so we'll do this again uh, at some point in the future, uh, I hope. Um, but for uh, today, my final question for you is always some variation of. If you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle of your writing career, wherever it would have made the most difference and give yourself some advice that would have made a significant, it would have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everybody who's watching or listening to us. You go back and tell yourself. Um, don't be so afraid. I think a lot of, um, and I still have to tell myself that it's, it's, this creative job is really tough, you know, and a lot of the time it's my own insecurities or my own um, sort of imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it. It's that stuff, feeling that you are not worthy or you're not good enough. Um, I think the great part about writing is uh, rewriting. And you're you're going to spend your life pretty much editing rather than writing first draft. Um, so... I would tell myself that not to be so afraid and, and, and to just go for uh, the things that are, are uh, your passion. For, with Midnight at the Barclay Hotel, I really made a change where I just sort of took a year and isolated myself from the business side of it and just focused on the craft. And that was a really good thing that I did. I just waited a while to do it and I wish I had done it sooner. So take the time to stay in your studio. Don't let anybody come in with their business advice or your critique groups or anything like that. Just put all your joy and your heart into the book, edit it, and then take it out and um, see where it goes. And that's what I did for Midnight at the Barclay Hotel. And I advise anybody out there who's writing, um, it's, it's the age old, don't give up. Um, really don't give up. If I'm a, a evidence of anything, it is the not giving up um, despite what maybe some external 
messages were coming from publishing or anything else. So don't give up, adapt, and um, you know, write that book of your heart, but do it in your studio without anybody coming in. That's the perfect note, Denmo. Where can esteemed audience find you online? Probably on social media and all that good stuff. So my website's fleurbradley.com, easy to find. Um, on Twitter, I am FT Bradley author, and that's where I spend most of my time um, between writing sessions and, and, and all that and school visits. So come see me there, say hi. I'm very friendly and approachable. Hopefully that's clear from this interview. Um, and uh, come see me there. As always, esteemed audience, for more interviews almost as good as this one with editors, authors, literary agents, book people, world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, pay cash money for Banneker Bones and the other Gator people. It's a good time and it will change your life. God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.